The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. My name is Mike Rankin. If you hadn't heard, Chicago White Sox hired Tony La Russa as manager. We're going to get to that. But first, let me introduce my co-host, James Fox, senior writer here at Future Sox, and our guest who needs a little introduction, Beef Loaf from the 108, at Mr. Delicious 13 on Twitter. Beef, it's so good to talk to you again. The last time we had a conversation, we were previewing the 2019 2020 White Sox going into the 2020 season. A little bit's changed. I think when we started the conversation, Beef, it was like, okay, wait and see. Well, we saw the White Sox are a pretty talented bunch. Rick Hahn was pretty excited going into this offseason. He was ready to attack after Rick Renteria was dismissed as manager. And in steps, Tony LaRussa. I want to get your opinion, obviously, on the LaRussa signing in a little bit. But first, give me your overall evaluation of the steps the White Sox took organizationally from the last time we talked to you across the whole year. Well, uh, Mike and, and James, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Uh, it yeah, in, uh, in 2019, in the offseason, you know, we, we were discussing sort of what's this going to look like and, 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 what, and there were a lot of questions. There was a lot of hope. I mean, there was a, a, a young core that we weren't sure who, who was going to make it, who wasn't going to make it, which players were going to take steps. You know, last uh, offseason, we were concerned about regressions from Tim Anderson, which that didn't happen. Tim Anderson was terrific. Uh, I personally was worried about a regression from Lucas Giolito. That did not happen. Lucas took steps forward. He was terrific as well. And then people were uh, concerned about a regression from Yohan Mankata, which we got in a weird way, not in the way we were <laughs> potentially expecting. It was more of a, you know, the guy got COVID and then, you know, physically, he just kind of wasn't there. But I think on the offensive side, uh, with the lineup, the White Sox answered a lot of questions. Luis Robert came up, hit the hell out of the ball, slumped, bounced back, was the terrific defender we expected. And so now you know you've you've got a floor of a guy who's a four-win player in center field. And so that sort of locks down some of your the, the bottom of your expectation right there. Nick Madrigal came up, you know, much to my surprise, he did actually come up and hit 340 and was uh, very good with the bat. Uh, still some things lacking with the base running and defense, but it's getting there. It's not a problem. The spot where you've got some uh, question marks still, you were hoping to make some answers, was uh, starting rotation. You had Michael Kopech opt out. 
You had uh, Dylan Cease pitch a season where you still didn't really figure it out. And then you did have uh, a, a guy like Dane Dunning come on and actually pitch really well uh, for his first few starts. You know, but it was a lot to ask for a guy coming off of injury. So I think you got some, still some open questions, but you got a fair amount of questions answered. And to have a team that's this exciting with enough questions answered where you think that the baseline of this team is in the high 80s and low 90s of wins. I think you mentioned a lot of what makes the White Sox intriguing is that internally they're filled with depth. And you mentioned it. There's a lot of question marks still, but it's very encouraging the type of progression those question marks sort of had. Uh, As we saw, like you mentioned, Dane Dunning is a huge plus. And just the other day, Jimmy Lambert was taken off the restricted list. We were concerned after, you know, he came back from Tommy John surgery, pitched, uh, and then was put back on the IL uh, with the forearm. And of course, that's very concerning following a major surgery. But several young players within the organization that they drafted or they signed internationally have come up and had success at the big league level. Now, moving on to the man leading the helm prior to Tony La Russa, and that was Rick Renteria. We saw the way that he managed this ball club. And overall, I think it was just the body of work from Renteria that suggested he wasn't the guy. Rick Hahn maybe felt the same way. What was your take on the way Rick Renteria managed the White Sox over his tenure? And do you think, you know, the firing was justified considering where uh, the White Sox stood at the end of 2020? Well, you know, Mike, I think I was probably – one of the, the high people on Ricky Renteria. And that's not necessarily that I think Ricky Renteria was a, a good manager. I've always couched it by, by saying that I think he's kind of mediocre. I think he's kind of in the pile of managers that could be managing a team, but doesn't really, let's just say he, he doesn't add to what you have in house. He probably won't screw up too much, but he'll, but he also doesn't, he, he does he's not a difference maker as, as far as a manager goes. I thought he was fine. I thought he was unremarkable. I thought he's uh, rigid in some of his decision-making and maybe not as flexible as the type of manager you might like to have. And as far as like justification for firing, I mean, anytime you want to improve a position, I'm fine with that. You know, so I, the day after I was surprised Mickey Renteria was fired, but about an hour after I, I saw that, I was like, okay, let's go. Who, who are we getting next? Who's going to be the, the new manager here? I look at it this way. Even players that you like that are on the roster – Think about it this way. Adam Engel's a fan favorite, right? People like Adam Engel. But if they went out and said, we're going we're gonna to upgrade Adam Engel, so we're going to get rid of Adam Engel and bring in a new guy. I mean, people like him, but you'd be happy that you got something new and something better, and it improves the White Sox chances. I'm a White Sox fan. I, I, you know, the individual pieces, I may like them or dislike them, but if you can get a better one, go get it. Is Tony LaRusso an upgrade over Rick Renteria, would you think? <laughs> I think so. I think uh I think probably from a decision making side he will be. Yes. Uh I say that cautiously only because uh he not to be ageist, but he's 76 years old and a 162 game season is a pounding. I mean, the players need days off on a regular basis. And the players when they're done playing, they're done. The manager is still thinking and and there's a lot going on with the manager that goes beyond what's you know, the three hours, uh, you know, that, that we're watching on television. So I'll caveat it by saying, assuming he has the energy to take this on, I think he is an upgrade, at least tactically. You know, as an informed fan, you're, you know, you're a season ticket holder too. So yes, I guess, what is your overall impression of like the La Russa hire? I mean, we're in agreement that I think from seven to ten thirty every night, 
like with what's asked, I think Tony LaRusso would be fine. But just in general, that being the direction that they went and then what it says about the organizational structure or hierarchy, I guess, like going forward that he was the one that ended up being the guy and how kind of weird it's been here over the last week. Well, I, I really, I like how you, uh, how you couched the question there, Gene. So uh, the, the, the process is, is for me, at least the, the big, uh, you know, red flag here. So I don't like the idea of just going with the single candidate and not running out a full process where you interview eight, 10, 12 candidates. And the reason why I don't, even if you ended up at the end saying, yes, the, the owner's friend is who we're going to go with because the owner is strong arming us into this decision because Rick kind of looked like he was a hostage on that video. I mean, he, he couldn't have looked more displeased and we can get to some of that later, but what you're missing out on here by not doing the process is optionality. You might find a candidate that you weren't really even thinking about that, that just blew your mind. You know, I, I think from the onset, when Rick Hahn gave the uh, press conference after getting uh, firing Ricky Renteria, the way he talked about the position, I think we kind of all envisioned like an AJ Hinch type, that it was going to be that sort of person. But you just don't know once you get into the interviews what you might find out. Uh, you also might find out something from the interviews about your organization that is a weakness that you never realized. So you, can, you may get intel that you weren't expecting to get from the interview process. Maybe you interview a few candidates and realize, oh, some of the things that this person would really focus on isn't something we're that focused on right now. And it could be an improvement to the organization. Uh, you might also find a candidate who you know you have a specific weakness and this is their specific strength. Like you realize that they're really damn good at this and they weren't something that someone that was at the top of your list uh, as, as far as optional. And the final thing with, with regards to optionality and something I thought from listening to Rick Hahn's press conference, I thought this was what he was going for. Because if you think about Rick Hahn GM or Rick Hahn executive with the White Sox, he's really only worked in one organization. He's only worked for the White Sox. It's been insular, like he said. So who has he had as sort of his baseball mentors? He's had like Jerry, he's had Kenny. And the way he's sort of built up his program is he's gone outside the organization and got Nick Hostetler, because he worked with the Atlanta, and maybe he could bring in some of the information he gets from there. He brought in Chris Getz from Kansas City. Okay, let's find out how they develop people, and we'll work it with our program. We'll think through what they, you know, what what kind of information we can get and refine that. He brought in Ricky Renteria from the Cubs. Obviously, it was only one year, but you kind of get, gather information that way. So I thought some of the the hire was going to be try to gather someone in here as the manager who could really help the org overall. Someone who could bring in who's a value add as far as how they want to build their program. Now, the program looks good right now, but you can always improve. And it's always a good idea to, like, get just someone else smart who knows something and kind of bring them in. So by, by blowing out the process, they whiffed on all of that stuff. They didn't even give themselves a chance to gather any of that information. And that's really the upsetting part. You're Even if you get a better tactical manager here, and maybe Tony does bring in some of that. Tony's still... You know, he's worked with a bunch of different organizations. He's been in other uh, teams' front offices between the time when he left the dugout till now. Maybe you'll get some of that from Tony, too. But I just felt like there was a, if you do a wider search, you got a better chance to gain more of that information. Yeah, and I, th I think we're all in agreement there that this is obviously like a Jerry Reinsdorf production. And look, like Kenny and, and Rick might not have even 
known that this was the direction, the direction that they were going to go the day that Rick Hahn spoke to the media, because it sure doesn't sound like it. Right. So right. With, with what you're saying, it seems like even if there were a bunch of candidates, like as soon as like LaRusso said that he might be interested, I feel like they kind of scrapped that whole plan and it was going to be Tony the whole time, which, you know, as you've said, is unfortunate. The one thing, you know, I don't really want to make this all about Rick Hahn. You, you've been somebody, obviously, that's been pretty critical of the general manager and the job that he's done some. Do you think like overall from a public perception standpoint, is this week actually, is this week good or bad for Rick Hahn? Because I've seen both. <laughs> that's interesting. Uh, I give you my perspective and I give you perspective I see on Twitter. So you're right. I have been critical of Rick Hahn, but I, I don't think I ever go out there and say uh, Rick Hahn's a bad GM. I don't think he is. I think he's in the middle somewhere and I think he's trending upwards. I think the program's gotten better. He's uh, he's made some right moves. Uh, he's acquired great talent and they're starting to develop more talent. Uh, so that's good. I, I think it's kind of trending in the right direction. For me, I looked at it like part, you know, being someone who's been out in private industry for 20 years and I've, it's, you know, I've been in public accounting, you know, I've been in real estate the last 15 years and I'm, a, I'm an accountant, I'm finance, accounting finance. Uh, seeing all of that unfold is something I see kind of all the time in the private sector, like where someone is, you think someone's going to get to make a decision and then someone higher up in rank just goes over the top of them and does it. And so part of me felt for him that like, this really sucks and it sucks that it's in public. When that happens to the rest of us in the private sector, there's only the people in your company are watching, not millions of fans watching on TV and everyone with bated breath. And then people nationally, like kind of looking at it like, oh shit, you know? So from one aspect, I think he's, he's a sympathetic figure, but also during the press conference, I was just like, thinking to myself, dude, get it together, man. You, you're clearly looking like you're very pissed off, you know, just by the way he like gulped the water and it was uncomfortable and the way he, his choice of words, uh, it was like, it was clear. It's like, man, you are big mad right now. Like just, we get it. We know, but chill out, man. Don't, don't blow up on this thing. And he, he didn't, he held his cool, but I was just like, I was nervous for him. You know, I was a little nervous at the front. I was just like, please don't lose it right here on TV. This would be bad for you, just for you personally. I mean, that, you know, the, so anyway, I, I think that that's sort of my take. I think publicly, I think for the most part, uh, people are sympathetic, you know, because all of us have had that happen to uh, to them over time. The one thing that is interesting that you bring up is the the hierarchy. Now, what happens? We were talking about this. I was talking about this with Treasy E. Uh, and he thinks that there's a possibility that if Tony says Tony wants something, he's going to be going straight to Jerry. And that that's going to be an issue as far as like, the pecking order here, and then how moves are going to have to be made. So really, it's going to depend on if a rapport can be built up between that press conference in which Rick Hahn clearly felt, you know, you could tell he was not interested in this, didn't want this, and when they start spring training. They're going to need to form a relationship, and somehow, some way, Hahn's going to need to be able to get on a level with Tony so that Tony's not going over the top of him all the time. Yeah, so I, you know, I think what, and Mike, uh, you can chime in here too, but I think with, with Cherise saying that, like that, that's like one of my fears too. And I think of like Garrett Crochet, for example, like if you're in spring training and the plan for Garrett Crochet is, you know, go to double A and throw 120 innings, right? And Tony LaRusse yeah. is like, no, he's, he's my closer. And Rick Hahn's like, no, nah, you know, he's, he's going to be a starter, but he's going to throw 120 innings down in the minors. But if, I mean, if Tony wants him as the closer and Tony goes to Jerry, like what happens then? Like who, you know, like who, right. who makes yep. that decision specifically or stuff like that. So I think it's, well, I think yeah. that's an interesting point. 
That's a very interesting perspective, and I, I kind of want to piggyback off that because, Beef, you mentioned the relationship and the hierarchy. How does it affect Rick Hahn's dealing with the rest of Major League Baseball if he's trying to work with other executives? Like, I was listening to the Locked On Sox podcast, and they made mention of this a little bit. Just how, because if you're trying to make a move or you're trying to sign a free agent, the free agent or the other executives and other front offices are going to say, well, who am I talking to? Am I talking to Rick Hahn or am I talking to Jerry Reinsdorf, Kenny Williams, and Rick Hahn? You know what I mean? How does that reflect, uh, I guess, the perception of the White Sox across Major League Baseball? You know, from that perspective, I, I, I'm I not as concerned because obviously Jerry's been in his seat for 40 years. Uh, Kenny's been in his for, you know, however long. And then Hahn's been the GM for eight years. I think kind of the teams know that and they know Jerry's eccentric and sometimes Jerry's going to grab the pen and do something erratic. I'm happy that he did something erratic here and didn't do something erratic, like not let them sign Luis Robert. Like, see, to me, that would have been more detrimental. So luckily our eccentric uh, owner has decided to only screw up this thing, which I don't think he potentially has screwed up that bad because it could get a lot worse or could have been a lot worse across this path. So, but I, but to your point, Mike, I, I don't think it will materially affect, affect that because I think teams are aware of Jerry and they're aware of, of the, the goofiness that goes on in this front office. So I think it's probably still okay. I worry more about the dynamic between Tony and then, and then Rick and Kenny and, and if, if th- he can bypass them. Yeah, I just think it's so unique, of course, just to the White Sox. And when Rick Hahn, and I, I'm going to keep it to Rick Hahn. I know we were trying to move past it, but this is so fascinating. When you when you look at the dynamic here, because Rick Hahn, like you mentioned, the demeanor, what he said in the postseason press conference, I mean, he was undermined. The, the yes. owner got what he wanted, and Rick Hahn was prepared to, to take part in a thorough search, and maybe A.J. Hinch was the guy. We don't know that. They didn't even get a chance to interview him because what's the point? I think Rick Hahn was hoping Tony LaRusso said no to the idea of coming back, but hey, the the will is still there. And you, you know what? To your point as well, the decision to bring in a guy like Tony LaRusso isn't as detrimental to, like you mentioned, the example of not signing a Luis Robert because I think talent trumps all. It's just a matter of maintaining the culture in the clubhouse and, and taking care of that side of thing, the day to day tasks as a manager. And I wonder how the rest of the coaching staff is going to fill out. And and let me bring it to this. What do you think about potentially Justin Jershley as the bench coach, just as sort of like a manager in training? Because a lot of us consider Jershley as a future manager. He's been across the affiliates in the organization, spent uh, time at Charlotte, double A, single A. So I wonder if that's in the cards. And I wonder too, if, they remain internal to fill the role at pitching coach as well. You know, I, I think that would be a great play, actually. I, and I wrote a I wrote a blog, and it was sort of a silly blog. This was like a week or two ago before we knew that LaRusso was going to be the manager, but where the whispers were out there where, you know, I kind of made fun of him a little bit. And my sock summer did a Photoshop where he's in the hot tub with us for the Sunday soak and just some goofy shit. And at the very end, I put a paragraph. I said, well, one logical way to do this would be you bring Tony in with a short-term, you know, track in mind, two years, three years, something like that. And you put Justin next to him and say, look, this is our, our guy. He's young. Uh, we love this guy and he's, he's highly regarded, but he hasn't managed at the major league level. He hasn't kind of interfaced with, you know, the personalities and stuff here. You put him next to Tony, you let him watch Tony, you let him build up a rapport with the team. And then you have your guy in there. You know, you, it's, 
it's not perfectly like this, but I mean, it could be like a, a, a you know, a Phil Jackson and, and Doug Collins situation. Phil was sitting next to Doug Collins for a couple of years before he ended up taking over the job and just sort of learning the personalities and, and figuring those things out. I really like that idea for the bench coach. I really like the idea of bringing him up. With regards to the internal promotions for the uh, for the the folks that are already here that are are clearly accomplishing things, especially with our young relievers and, and sort of getting them to to move up rank quickly, my initial thought on all that was I would have preferred to go outside and find a guy like maybe Ruben Niebla from from the Indians or someone from a place where they develop pitching just to get another brain in there to help out the total group. I, I would prefer, like, grab someone who's already working at a place, has a, an established pitching program, and who's, like, under undertitled right now. And that's really where I, I would have preferred to go. No problem with promoting within because there's good work being done in the minors right now. But I would add – I would prefer to add someone additional there so that, you, you know, you just kind of grow the whole group's knowledge base. Uh, you know, so I think that's their only remaining opportunity because they were not allowed to uh, do that with the manager. In sticking to this conversation quickly, I think the a lot of the outrage, of course, is you didn't want to see Tony LaRusso as manager because of, well, he hasn't done it since 2011, and he's had certain opinions and views on things that rub people the wrong way. And without getting too deep into that conversation, I think today, in 2020, when you're looking at modern baseball, there is some apprehension when you're thinking about a guy like LaRusso who didn't dismiss analytics when he was with the Diamondbacks. He kind of just said, well, it's not the end-all be-all, which I can understand, but it seemed like he was sort of like, eh, but he's come around to it. I mean, he wouldn't be in the game today if he didn't. And another part of it, I think, adds to the frustration of White Sox fans is at the modern level, right, of the game today, you were expecting or hoping and rooting for someone who's been in the game working with analytics or data or up to speed on where the game is today, as opposed to sort of going backwards in a sense. And and the final point I think also relates to the frustration is the way the, like we already talked about, the hiring process was conducted. I mean, they brought in Willie Harris, but I mean, that was just a, hey, how are you? Okay, thanks, see ya. And then they brought in their guy in Tony Larusa, completely undermining Rick Hahn. And I think that's where I'm most frustrated. I'd love to get your opinion on why you think the fan base overall is frustrated at this signing. Well, I, I mean, I think, yeah, I, I think first off regarding some of the, the social stuff. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, the world's different uh, than it was. And and for a lot of people, it's not any different. That's kind of how they thought, but there's been an enlightening uh, of, you know, how we treat certain groups of people and how we need to stop doing that, you know, and, and people are getting better about, Hey, we got to be good to everybody. And, and a lot of people already were, but you know, that's a, and I think, Tony was being a loud mouth in 2016 and just stating an opinion. And over time he's worked with people and maybe he's changed his opinion. Maybe he's not, maybe he's just putting on a good face uh, for an interview, uh, but I, I don't think that's going to end up being a problem just because of the, the people who are the strong willed uh, outspoken social players on the white Sox. their level of character. They're not going to let that affect them. I would be shocked if a, if a Lucas Giolito or Tim Anderson allowed even a manager that was overbearing in that respect to do anything to the performance or, or any way in which they play the game. So I, I think that will probably end up being fine. With regards to analytics, it's interesting because 
the term analytics gets thrown out there, but <clears throat> analytics is purely information or the or the um, processing of information effectively and to try to understand decisions better. And some of the way you develop methodologies in this vein is someone comes up with an idea, they run and crunch numbers on it, and then you either test it out in the marketplace or you push back internally about the ideas and think through it. So in some respects, it could be helpful to have someone who's seen all the wars, who's been in other organizations, who's done sort of different methods of this, push back on whatever the White Sox are trying to do. They did not have a strong uh, type of manager before, like Rick Renteria, to be able to push back on that in a positive way where you could gain from the experience, right? Because everything that you, everything that you run numbers on, everything that you put in a spreadsheet is not going to work. People need to think about it from the perspective of, yeah, some stuff is kind of proven and tried and true. You shouldn't be bunning very much, right? You shouldn't be intentionally walking. But I think a lot of the stuff we're talking about is like digging even deeper into information uh, decision science effectively. And not all of that stuff is solved at this point. It takes some utilizing that out in the marketplace, some internal pushback, some more thinking through it. So while I like the idea and process, and I'm a, I'm a big numbers guy, big analytics guy, and I, I love the idea of trying out different strategies and trying to learn from them. I think it could actually end up being helpful to have someone in-house saying, just push back in a way that, okay, well, let's, let's think through this. Let's clarify our thinking on this stuff. Um, he has always kind of been an innovator. And so I, I think ultimately everyone's goal is in the same spot, try to win this game tonight sort of thing. So I, I, I'm not too concerned there. I mean, yeah, the, the outrage is generally we want someone younger and someone who's who's proven in a more recent marketplace. Tony's last proving ground was a decade ago, okay? And for a lot of people, the game has changed a lot in a decade. And will and is he up to doing this now? You're pretty sure that A.J. Hinch is because he just won a title, you know? You're pretty sure that some of the other potential interviewees that have been sitting on the bench of these uh, juggernaut organizations are kind of ready for this. You don't really know if Tony is, and the uncertainty is, is a lot of why White Sox fans are pissed. So, you know, one potential positive to Jerry Reinsdorf hiring his buddy put in this role, a lot, a lot of people think that maybe that means that he might spend a little bit more money than we're used to. Now, you know, the White Sox are right around, I think, 93, 94 million after arbitration. So, you know, even if they spent what they spent last year, you're looking at almost like $30 million to spend. What are you like looking at this off season, what, what do you think would be ideal compared to what do you think they'll actually do? And do you think this really changes much? Um, it might, I'm, I'm not exactly sure if, if the, if this will be Jerry putting the, the pedal to the metal here and buying up in a marketplace where you're right. A lot of the other owners may be crying poor. They may be saying, well, we don't have a lot of money to spend here, so we're just not going to do it. Um, for me, I think, the White Sox have sort of a weird roster. They have a weird 40-man in the sense that the starting lineup, the position players are pretty much baked. And the pitching, they have two starting pitchers that we're sure of. They have another pile of, let's, let's, let's say, about five starters that any one of them could end up being kind of as good as the top two starters, but you just don't know who. And as you go into a season where you're expecting to be competitive, it's tough to weigh – how much do we want to let these guys develop at the majors and try to use these guys versus forget it. We're just going to go out in the marketplace, spend some money. How is these guys at AAA? And if something happens, then we're kind of forced to use them. 
Based on the way the White Sox treated the trade deadline where they sat pat, I'm led to believe that if they do go out and buy a starting pitcher, it'll be of the one-year flyer type to mix in with what they have. And I think they'll just sort of let serendipity take place. And whoever, you know, whoever rises to the top out of the pile, either the prospect pile or the couple guys they go out there and get, I think, I think that's what ends up being your starting rotation. I'd be surprised if they add to the bullpen. I think they feel pretty good about the bullpen, and I think that's reasonable. I would add a couple sort of low-end guys. I would, I would, uh, I'd spend a couple million bucks. I wouldn't go out there and buy a closer. I would just let the closer sort itself out from from inside. Um, I think where they end up really spending money is in right field. I think you go out and get one thumper. Um, and although I think that the market in general is going to be depressed, I expect the top of the market to still uh, hold its value. I think where where it's going to lose value is in the in the middle and lower parts of the market where you're you're already starting to see uh, non tenders and people getting cut loose for options where you thought wow why, why wouldn't that team keep them and not just Cleveland either. Yeah, I completely agree with you as far as like the market. The top guys are going to get paid. Um, I I agree wholeheartedly about the bullpen. I've seen a lot of people you know that want them to go out and like spend on Liam Hendricks to close or something. Like I I've always been against doing that. And I think especially in this marketplace, you're going to have a ton of relievers on the market. You're going to be able to patch a bullpen together. They've been able to do it. You know, you, you save some prospects to where if you're in first place in July, you know, you, you go get your reliever then instead of like spending in the off season. So that, that I very much agree with. I want to get your thoughts on, you know, they were very good against left-handed pitching last year, but they did like, you know, they hit enough against righties. Like they were a really good offense, but I think this team has like a left-handed problem. And it's not easy to fix because your core players all hit right-handed. So it's basically like if you want a left-handed bat, specifically a left-handed bat that can hit against righties, he's kind of got to go in right field. Because even, you know, you have Andrew Vaughn coming up. I mean, unless you're trading Nick Madrigal and putting a guy at second or moving one of these core guys, I mean, that's pretty much the area for it. Do you, you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, whether they need to balance the lineup more and get like a left-handed bat in there somehow? Yeah, I totally agree. I, they they do need to start hitting right-handed pitching better, and there are really no spots to put that person. I mean, you're right. Andrew Vaughn's going to be here before long. I, I don't know if I think Andrew Vaughn's going to be on the opening day roster, but, I mean, I'll be surprised if if it's 4th of July and he's not here. So, like, you kind of, like, if, if you want – the way I would patch this thing is I would buy two corner outfielders, one that I expect to play every day in right field, and another one that could play either corner, and both of these guys need to either hit left-handed or – just hit righties well. So it could be a right-handed hitter as long as they're uh, above average hitter against right-handed pitching, because you're right. The White Sox do kind of get pigeonholed there. And like Tim Anderson's great production against left-handers last year was the exact opposite against righties. He really struggled. So uh, yeah, there there's, they've got to add balance and they only really have one hole to add that balance to uh, unless they flip over the roster in some way, shape or form. I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I mean, and flipping over the roster would entail like getting rid of somebody that people don't want to see gone. You know, I mean, it, you know, you got your right-handed bat in left field at second base, probably at first base, you know, pretty much everywhere. So I, I agree that two bats is ideal, but it is kind of like a weird situation, right? Like if you go out and splurge and, you know, like a George Springer's your new right fielder, but then you also sign Michael Brantley to start the year at DH and like kind of rotate with Jimenez. Well, as soon as, you know, as soon as Vaughn's ready and up, like what happens to Michael Brantley then, right? Like it's easy, I think, for us to say, like, oh yeah, just add two left-handed bats. But then if one of them's going to be like sitting all the time by mid-season, I think it all just kind of depends on cost and what happens with this market. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And, and it would help if if left-handed bat number two or or hitter number two uh, was flexible position-wise, you know, like so because you are going to have injuries. You know, we're, we're thinking about this in a, in a perfect world in which everyone always stays healthy and Elo Jimenez does not fall into the spider webs and get trapped there for a couple weeks. You know, like we're thinking about this as just like our optimal lineup, but shit happens during the year. Someone's going to get hurt, probably multiple someone's. Like the 2020 White Sox were extremely lucky when it came to health. They just didn't get hurt at all. I mean, Tim Anderson missed 10 days. Mankata was, you know, he was injured throughout the year, but generally playing. So, like, you, you kind of didn't have the the position player injuries. Your top two starters missed one start combined. So, like, you 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 stayed very healthy. I wouldn't expect that to be the case again. So, I agree. while I agree with you, I don't think you would get bat number two as someone as good as Michael Brantley. I think you do fill it in with someone reasonable. And then expect for the worst to happen. And if it doesn't, great. Well, you're going to have to make Tony. This will be Tony LaRusse's problem to make sure everyone's happy and gets enough at bats. Let him earn his money. The rotation, I think, now is is something of a focus. And with Michael Kopech being reinstated from the restricted list is a step in the right direction. I'd love to get your opinion on where the White Sox want to go with their starting rotation how they view what they already have and how they view the free agent market and who they may pursue. If you have anybody in mind or the routes that they may take, because you have a Dylan Cease right now, who's a question mark, Reynaldo Lopez, Michael Kopech, Dane Dunning. Those are all great names. Carlos Rodon is on the chopping block potentially as well. Uh, and I'll get to Nomar Mazzara too. I want to get your Nomar Mazzara take, but let's stick to the rotation first. What do you think the plan of attack will be for the White Sox this offseason? I mean, I, ideally, they would go out there and get Marcus Stroman because I think Marcus Stroman is the right mixture of cost and effectiveness for our ballpark because he's prodigious throwing ground balls. I don't think they're going to go that way. I don't think they're going to sign another pitcher for a lot of money. And I, I was looking at the 2022 payroll already, and the 2022 payroll, the White Sox are already lining up to almost $100 million on, like, only eight players. And that's not including Giolito's arbitration raise, which will obviously be magnified because of his year one arb raise. Year two arb raise in 2022 will be even larger. So I don't expect them to to pile more, you know, substantial more money, especially long-term money, into the rotation. I think they're going to go out there and get some kind of one-year flyer guys. I, I you know, I like Matt Schumacher, even though he can't stay healthy. Um, I like Taiwan Walker. Um, you know, Alex Wood is always interesting to me. I don't know if any of these guys could stay healthy for long term, but if you add one or two guys like that, and then you let the prospect pile, including Dylan Cease, who James Fox thinks I don't like, I like Dylan Cease. I want Dylan Cease to be good. I was he's the last uh player who, when he came up, I was so excited. I took the day off so I could be there on July 3rd for game one of the doubleheader and and watch his his uh his first start. Um, I, I want one of these guys to succeed. And I, and I think if you add in a couple of low-end guys, you'll figure out who succeeds. It might be rough the first half of 2021 with the back part of the rotation. But this team hits a ton. They probably can cover it over for, you know, 40, 60, 80 games if need be while you figure out what's going on there. So I, I don't expect a, a big spend on the starting pitching side. I expect a couple of small flyers, and then you let the other guys battle it out. Give me your evaluation then of Dylan Cease across his White Sox tenure to this point, because I'm I'm a fan of him, but there is a lot that's left out there to be desired, I feel like. And there's there's improvement left in his game, but the stuff, 
the stuff cannot be denied. Is is he going to be able to put it together? I guess is I'm trying to ask you. I don't know. I I read, I, I listened to a podcast, and this was probably during towards the second half of the 2020 season uh, with Eno Saris and, and Derek Van Riper. It was an athletic podcast, and uh, Eno is a big pitching guy, and he was talking about how often he tends to miss. Uh, in the wrong direction on the stuff guys. So he will have the stuff guys rated high and they'll totally burn out. And how often he misses on the control guys, the control command guys, where he'll have them sort of lower and then they they tend to pop up. And how the control and command guys might be kind of a little more reliable. The only problem is it's harder to teach the stuff guys. Like the stuff guys kind of, you can teach some of that. You can teach some spin rate, but a lot of it is, you know, this guy can do this or he can't do it. So I think you you kind of got to hold on and hope that he makes the adjustments. You know, we, we're a joke on the 108 podcast. I, I always say the guy needs a slump buster. Man. He needs to go out there and just lose his mind. Maybe he needs to get drunk before he starts because he's just too tightly wound up there, man. Just settle down and let your pitches fly. I always think these, these stuff guys try to be a little too careful. Just rip. And let those guys try to hit it. Now, that didn't work out great for Dylan last year. But I, I almost kind of wonder if, um, you know, just if they could figure out a way to get him to relax a little bit and not worry so much and just throw strikes in the, in the upper part of the zone. One of, one of the things I was looking at out in the, in the marketplace for sort of backup catchers, and I don't know if the Sox will spend on one, is just uh, backup catchers that are good at framing up in the zone. When you look at framing numbers, Yasmani Grandal is a great framer, but materially his value is sort of in the bottom part of the zone. So that's great for like a Dallas Keuchel is going to be throwing a lot of low strikes. But Cease and then Dunning to some effect too are going to be throwing up in the zone. They're going to be throwing their fastballs higher in the zone. And so a guy that I saw and I picked off was Wilson Ramos. You know, he used to be good. I don't know that he's any good anymore. The Mets just turned down his, his option. So he's going to be out there. I'd love to see them make a move where they, they address that second catcher looking at these young guys and saying, all right, who, who's the best fit for those guys? And let's just try to bring them along. Beef, you made a great point there. And this is really good stuff across the board. Related to Dylan Cease, I agree wholeheartedly that I would love to see an approach where he just kind of relaxes on the mound as opposed to trying so hard every pitch to get every single thing working in the same direction mechanically the release point the stuff the spin rate whatever you know I think he it seems like just by watching him on the mound he is trying so hard to do everything right when I think if he just allowed his stuff to take care of itself maybe he could be a more productive pitcher and I don't know I don't know how you can fix that and that's just as an observer you know there's really no tangible evidence to it but it just seems to me that's an issue right now for Dylan Cease yeah, you know, it, it was interesting in the playoff game. I think it was game two. They used him out of the bullpen. He didn't have all day to think about this or think about the second time he's facing the batter. They sent him to go warm up. He warmed up. He came in. He threw strikes and he got outs. And it was it was weird. So there's there's maybe something to the the mental side there that that Dylan, if Dylan could just get to the point where it's just like I'm just going to rip this bandaid off and go. Let's let's just get in there and I don't care what happens. I'm just going to mow these guys down because in the playoff game, he looked good out of the bullpen. And I'm not saying I, that would be worst case scenario, in my opinion, having to use Dylan out of the bullpen. I really, if you can still make him a starter, you make him a starter and you keep trying for now, you know, but just something that gets that, gets that focus lined up for him. You know, some of the, 
the Dylan C stuff, like some of your concerns though, over like you, you haven't been wrong about, I mean, he, he hasn't really bounced back some of the apprehension and look, it's not that many starts, but you know, we're getting to the area where, you know, some people think that he, he could ultimately be like what he is at this point. And I think the problem with that is like when you're trying to win baseball games, I mean, they're going to come into the season, I think as AL central favorites. Right. So like he's going to yeah. have a very short leash and, and there's a lot of, you know, prospect guys and scouts that, that have always thought that, you know, he had significant re- reliever risk and that's what he was going to be anyway. I mean, you know, you sign two pitchers this off season and they're both, you know, pretty good in spring training and locked into spots. Like I'm not, I'm not sure Dylan Cease is definitely part of this thing, but like you said, there's three or four guys that are kind of thrown into the mixer here you know, that are going to probably be able to battle in spring training, which is another thing that's, you know, going to be interesting, I think, to look at this offseason is just like their entire pitching model and how many guys they throw back there. I think it would have been fascinating with any manager, you know, let alone what they actually did. So that that's one of the things I'm looking forward to is just what pitching moves they make because there's so many guys on the market. Yeah, James, I, I agree with you. If if they go out there and get a couple guys, even low-end guys, and either of them stick or maybe both of them stick, it's a good problem to have because Kopech's got options, Cease has options, Dunning has options. There's nothing better than having a bunch of depth. you know. And this is not something we're used to as White Sox fans. Even when they were good in the last era, if anyone got hurt, the people you were calling up to start, no one had ever heard of these guys. And so you'd like to have a program where, okay, you know, if, if a Jimmy Lambert is your eighth or ninth starting pitcher, it's like, okay, he comes up. It's like, this looks like a competent pitcher. This isn't a guy who's going to be washing cars next week after he makes this start. You know, like they would have legit guys, and that's what the good teams do. You know, the Dodgers figure out a way to hide a million pitchers and put guys on the DL and, you know, all kinds of weird shit. I would love it if the Sox were able to expand it to the point where they had enough depth where it's like, if anyone, if a couple guys go down, a real guy's going to make a start in their place. Yeah, I completely agree with you. And we're, you know, we're in agreement about the 40 man roster and how it's just kind of weird and how it might look a little bit different. You know, they, they kind of have a weird team where I think they're considered, you know, with a couple of moves, one of the best, better teams in the American league, but you know, there's, there's obvious holes and there's also some guys who, you know, might find themselves not here for very much longer. So, you know, I think everybody knows, at this point, you know, how many baseball games you attend per year and uh, where you sit. What is, what is your ideal situation or scenario here for, for right field this offseason? Do you want another stopgap? And then, you know, maybe it's one of these international guys going forward, like in a couple of years here, or do you want, you know, like a five-year deal for somebody major to patrol right field for you? I mean, I'm, I'm kind of of the I, – I, I agree with you that I'd prefer a lefty, particularly a lefty that kills righties. Um, I'd prefer a guy with more bat-to-ball skills because the, even though the White Sox offense was so good, they still struck out a lot. They were still like bottom five in strikeouts. Um, to me, short term, I like Michael Brantley. I think Michael Brant. I don't know if he can really play much right field anymore. I mean, I'm sure they could stick him out there with a glove. It'll look like late career Jermaine Dye where he couldn't move, but if the ball was hit right at him, he'd catch it. You know, and you have Luis Robert as cover there, and you have Adam Angle for late innings if you need to pull him out of the game. So I, I would go like sort of a bet first guy who I, I think has enough bet to ball skills. I mean, looking down the pipeline, I'm not that confident that the guy is there. I like Mick Rodolfo a lot, but he's just been injured all the time. You know, when when Blake Rutherford came over, he, w- he had a lot of high praise. 
you know, he hasn't really produced in, in the minor league seasons. I, I've heard he, I've heard good things about the, the Schaumburg camp and that things may be improving there. Great. They don't really have sort of a, you know, a higher end heir apparent there. And so I'm not sure, like when I look at the, the, the balance of that 40 man, I guess one of the, one of the tactical mistakes that the White Sox may have made last year when they were kind of doing a hybrid of let's we're competing, but we're still trying to develop because we're still going to trot out these young pitchers every five days. Maybe one of the mistakes that they made was not just telling Edwin Encarnacion to get lost on August 31st and then giving those plate appearances to either Zach Collins or your Mercedes and find out what a month of them is going to look like where they just play all the time. Like, cause right now you don't know with either of them, right? I mean, Collins has played sporadically. Mercedes got one plate appearance. So you, even those guys are on the 40 man and you don't really know what they are. You're pretty sure they're not full-time catchers, but you didn't find out if they could hit or not. Yeah. I, you know, I think the Collins thing is fascinating. And obviously everybody knows, like I like Zach Collins, but like it, it goes back to the year before that for me, like they're playing Wellington Castillo, you know, for the whole month of September, the previous season with Zach Collins, just kind of sitting there, not playing. I think Zach Collins can hit right-handed pitching in the major leagues. That might be all he can do, but he's definitely not going to do it playing once a week. And, but you also don't want to turn around and like trade him for nothing. I feel like, so that that's another thing where I don't really like, maybe he's, maybe he's the backup catcher next year, but if he's not like, what does he really do for you? So yeah, there's just like a lot of situations like that. And I agree with you, you know, none of the, none of the prospect right fielders, nobody should be penciling any of those guys in as like the 2022 starter. So, you know, <laughs> right. while, I mean, while but what, yeah. And that's like the, you know, that's where I think things come back to the George Springer thing here. Like as much as, you know, I want a left-handed bat, you know, out there to balance things out. Like if Jerry finally decides to spend money and, you know, they go, they go your pitching route, but they bring in George Springer, who's another right-handed bat, but he hits everybody. I think everybody would be fine with that. That would, that would work out for me. Yeah. I'd be thrilled. I would, I would absolutely be thrilled with that. I I've sort of like blocked George Springer out of my mind. Cause I just think he's like, he's too much kind of the way I, I think. Um, although I think, I think he's way more volatile. I, I sort of think Trevor Bowers too much. I think he's kind of out of our stratosphere. Uh, I think Bowers is more volatile as far as performance than a lot of people are giving him credit for because he's coming off of the great year. Like I think there's, there's a Trevor Bauer that if he signed in Chicago and pitched a full season that could give up 40 home runs, like it, it just would not shock me at all. So like, that's why I'm, I kind of stay away from him. it's price. And like, you could really come in here and lay an egg and it wouldn't surprise me one bit. You mentioned Michael Brantley there. I really like that idea because he's someone who just hits and he's left-handed of course, but he's just someone who hits. He dealt with the injuries a little bit in his across his career and he's getting up there in age, but he can still be such a productive bat in the lineup. And I feel like he does fill a lot of the needs that the Sox are missing right now. Uh, So that's a great name that I like that you threw out there. But another name in right field, obviously is the Nomar Mazzara thing that happened across last year. He's a tender candidate. Uh, along with Carlos Rodon, what do you see is going to happen? And what, what are the decisions you think the White Sox are going to make with those two in Rodon and Mazar moving forward? Yeah, what's funny about, I'll start with Rodon. I'll start, I'll start with the second choice first. It's the funny thing about Rodon is when you look at the pitching market, the free agent pitching market in particular with starting pitchers, you have like a top three that are, are well-known and good commodities um, with, Bauer and Stroman, and then I'll put uh, Masahiro Tanaka in that group. 
And then it falls off significantly. There are lots of gambles out there. And so when I look at Carlos Rodon, we've been watching the terribleness for a couple of years and the injuries and all that stuff. But if you threw him out into the marketplace, he'd be similar to a lot of the kind of the low end uh, of the free agent pitching market gambles, whereas he's got a pedigree. You know, he was a above league average pitcher at one point in his career. He's not anymore. I mean, like if Matt Harvey can keep getting employed, I think someone is going to employ Carlos Rodon next year, even as a starting pitcher. But that said, I don't think the White Sox will uh, will tender him a contract. I think they'll kind of just let him go off into the marketplace. Kind of think that one's over. With Nomar Mazzara, maybe. I, I mean, I always looked at Mazzara this way, and, and, and uh, James, you, you can correct me if, I, if my perception here is wrong. I, I never really looked at him as like they were going to use him as a platoon guy. I thought they went out and got him because they thought, we got Frank Menachino here. He could not, hopefully he could help him with his swing, unlock something here, and we'll figure out what's going on. And when people were, you know, calling for his head throughout, the, especially through the second half of the season, all I kept thinking was, this has only been 120 plate appearances or whatever. They're trying to let this guy work this thing out and figure it out. And he stunk, yes, but they're, part of this year is kind of development. And then at the very, very end of the year, including in the playoffs, the plate appearances looked much better. And so it wouldn't surprise me if they did tender him, but I would tender him with a backup plan. I would, in fact, if he was corner outfielder number two, like you go out and sign a guy who you think is going to play every day and to start the season, you have Nomar Mazzara as sort of your, your reserve outfielder switching in at DH occasionally, that'd be okay. I don't think I'd love it. But I think it's a, a, a reasonable thing to do because I think what they were really trying to do there was unlock an everyday player that they think existed. I think if they if going into, 29, uh, into the 2020 season, I'm sorry, they thought they were doing a platoon, I think there were cheaper platoon options out there. I think they were trying to see, can we get Nomar Mazar's prospect uh, status back here? And it, it didn't happen because the season was shortened at a minimum. So, hey, Mike, really quick. So, like Mazzara, you know, we did on a different podcast and that was Mike's like cheap option. You know, like if they go cheap, like maybe they hang on to Mazzara and kind of do the whole thing again. My thought was that like, you know, third year Arb, he's probably over 6 million. Like I just, I don't know if I can yeah. see them paying that if we're on a limited budget. Right. So you look at, right. you know, some of the Sox machine offseason plans and whatnot. Like, I just feel like in this flooded market, 6 million might be too much for him. Now, obviously, like you said, you could tender him and dump him before that. And you're only paying a prorated amount, I think. But yeah, right. I, I think your thought was correct. They were trying to extract like an everyday player. And obviously like, look, he, he was hurt um, at the beginning and we don't really know like what he is. I just, I don't know if they can afford to mess around, you know, after you hire Tony Larusa, and the plan is to clearly win the 2021 world series. And beef, hold on. Let me clarify because when we were talking about this on the on the podcast, I felt like there was more left in the Mazzara project because I felt like the White Sox invested the time in trying to correct an approach that saw his swing uh, result in a lot of swing and misses that generated power, yes, but not at the efficient rate that they felt like it could. And I felt like the project across 2020 in Mazzara was to create more contact. And I felt like in the latter part of the year, like you said, it, it started to come to fruition, but just based on some of the swings that we saw across 2020, I don't know if this was the case, but it did seem like Mazzara was trying to hit for more contact. And with that being said, that leads me to believe that the White Sox aren't going to give up on a, on a guy like him so quickly. 
after, of course, you know, the limited plate appearances in a shortened season. I don't know. That was just my perspective. And I guess, yeah, six million in the grand scheme of things does consider, you know, can amount to be cheap in comparison to what's on the market at, at that position. But I just feel, feel like it was the approach and that the project and the commitment that they made to acquiring this player on top of the fact that they did trade somebody for him. Um, and they they had that option to play with. I just I didn't think it was so cut and dry. So I'm with you. I think it's a very interesting conversation and, and topic to discuss related to the the decision behind keeping or letting go Nomar Mazzara. Well, Mike, you bring up a great point too. They did trade a prospect for him, and, and people will roll their eyes and say, "Oh, Steel Walker, who cares?" But it, it, I've been looking on Fangraphs lately on, on the what they call the board, which is like sort of their prospect board, and I kind of like the way they rate things. I don't know that they're any more accurate than anybody else. I just like the way they sort of categorize stuff and number things. And so an accountant like me can kind of more easily understand. And so their rating of him on there is a 40 plus. And the only corner outfielder in the White Sox system that's a 40 plus is Mick Rodolfo. So like he would be kind of one of the, the, you know, the top guys waiting in the wings, at least according to that rating system. So it wasn't like they traded necessarily a nothing. I agree with you, but I also I also see James's point. I think the market's probably going to be depressed at the bottom, and like you could you could get the the Nomar Mazar facsimile for less than six million. Is it, that's kind of what you're thinking, James? Yeah, and I, I I think my other Nomar Mazar problem is is just that like I I think I kind of want him to make less contact. Like I want him to hit balls in the air, which is like the the biggest problem with when he was a prospect. People thought he was like a forty home run type guy, and then throughout seasons he's like hitting too many baseballs on the ground and they were trying to, you know, try to have him. I don't know if it was necessarily like more contact, but it was like better contact getting him to elevate and just like for whatever reason he can't. And it was always said that he's very receptive. Like, it's not like he's outwardly like challenging coaches. He just like gets into games and doesn't hit the ball in the air for whatever reason. So yeah, he's just like a really weird case. I wouldn't be surprised if he has an all-star season for somebody at like the age of 29 though. It's just like one of those <laughs> yeah. things where, where it's just like, I mean, look, he was a top 20 prospect in baseball. So that means it's in there somewhere. It's just, I don't know if the White Sox have time to be the team that finds it. And you you know what, James, you're right there. You're absolutely right. It's just, you know, my perspective on the whole thing is that it's not so cut and dry. You know what I mean? Like I'm not advocating for Noma Mazzara because I think they can upgrade there uh, at a cost efficient rate, but it's just, uh, again, like I said, it's fascinating beef. And I think you put it very well, just the situation that they're in organizationally, like there's not a lot there. Yeah. It's, 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 it's pretty barren. Like you, there's no reason one of those guys couldn't pop up and kind of become, uh, but it's not like you're, you're holding a spot, you know, like for Andrew Vaughn, you're holding a spot. I, I may think he's not ready on, on March 31st and maybe you guys do, but I think we kind of all think somewhere in 2021, Andrew Vaughn's on this roster and playing. So you're holding you you want a spot open for him, or you want to you'd be happy when a spot does open up for him, injury or otherwise. But there's no one like that in the corner outfield uh, for the White Sox. In fact, on the position player side, there's kind of really nobody else left that you're you're going to hold a spot for. There's guys further down there, and there's a development potential, especially with some of the the teenagers that unfortunately didn't get a chance to to play a season uh, this last year. But there's nobody like right there, right on the cusp where you're thinking, okay, well, we've got to make plans for them. Different than the pitching side where you have a lot of those guys. Yeah. I mean, I completely agree with, I mean, you know, the pitching side, obviously, like we're doing our lists and our our prospect stuff, which is kind of what we do. But, you know, the position player side, once Vaughn graduates, it's going to be 
you know, a lot of high school type guys who have a lot of upside, but you know, they didn't get to play this year. So that that's going to be something interesting to, to track. Beef, one final thing. If there was one player on the market that you'd like to see the White Sox acquire, who would that be? Ooh, that's uh, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> this free agent market, in my opinion, overall, is fairly weak. It's it's uh, it's weak in uh, especially on the starting pitching side. I think next year is a little bit more of a, a bumper crop of potential free agents out there. So if the White Sox just kind of I expect them to spend some money, enough money where you feel like you have a very strong 26-man roster. But if they wanted to wait for a big outlay for, uh, you know, Noah Syndergaard or I, I think Max Scherzer's back out there again in 2022, like there's, a, there's, a, there's some blue-chip assets out there then. For me, for now, I just need them to add one bat that could play corner outfield because as, as much as we know right field as a whole, I don't know what Eloy Jimenez is going to be. I know he's going to get trotted out to left field, but the injuries keep piling up on him. And I would really just love to have another guy who can handle the spot because I, as much as Adam Engel's made some pathway and has gotten better, I mean, every day Adam Engel for like half the season, I'm not sure that's a, a winning formula for the White Sox. You know, unless he, unless he were to have to hold down center field and then that's an even worse problem. So for, for both of you guys, like, you know, we kind of saw what, and we'll end here in a minute, but you, you saw what Joel Sherman said today. If Jerry Reinsdorf's going to zig here kind of while everybody else zags, and obviously I think JT Realmuto is out of the question um, with Grandall here, but your top two free agents are George Springer and Trevor Bauer. I'm kind of with what Beef said earlier. I actually think if they're going to do one of those big moves, I'd be more excited with Springer because I think they can patch the pitching together with smaller moves. What do, what do both of you guys think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree totally with you, James. I would be thrilled if George Springer was was playing right field. Uh, just he, he can hit at the top of the order if you need him to. He hits for enough power. He could slide him back into the middle of it if you need to. He can handle center field. If anything, you know, if you need to give Luis Robert a day off or if Luis Robert gets a little bit of a nagging injury, he would be kind of the perfect solution. I don't know if they, they're going to play that high in the market, but I would definitely prefer him over – over Trevor Bauer. Like I said, I'm a little concerned about the volatility in Trevor Bauer's uh, potential performance. Maybe he's a superstar now. I'm not sure. I'm I'm totally with you. I think George Springer would be the highlight of the offseason if the Sox were able to land him. But Beef, I think you elaborated really well about the state of this free agent market. You know, there's a lot of questions financially across the league in general that, that, you know, Major League Baseball is preparing for, but also the names, the quality of names. Do you really want to invest in this class or do you want to allocate maybe resources and give yourself time with the, obviously the payroll you have now, a lot of cost control guys with players like Giolito still in arbitration. I mean, it's interesting when you look at the way that the Sox can approach it. You know, it's not one guy, right? Springer could be the highlight, of course, and I'd be elated, but I'm not holding out my hopes uh, on that one. But I think just in general, if they do find the right fits and if they're smart in acquiring specific guys to fill roles of areas of need, I should say, then I think it's a win in the offseason. And then you go out and attack next year. And I don't know if Sox fans are going to like here and next year, next year, next year. But I, I think that's the state of it right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, be opportunistic. I, I would say that if, if the bottom falls out of the middle of the pitching market, then go buy three starting pitchers if that's great value, and and tell your prospects, well, you're going to go to Charlotte. We're going to work you out there. We're going to, you know, we're going to send Dane Dunning, and we're going to send Cease, we're going to send Kopech. 
All three of you go to Charlotte. If anything happens up here, we'll bring you up. You know, I mean, be fluid and 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 do, you know, James brought up early on that I've been critical of Rick Hahn. The reason why I'm critical of Rick Hahn sometimes is like, I don't feel like he's, his thinking is dynamic enough. Like if some shit happens that we could take advantage of, take advantage of it. Don't worry about, you know, if we, I know we have Andrew Vaughn, but if someone great fell to you that you're going to have to play every day at the DH, do it and then let him wait or let an injury happen and fill in that gap. I don't want to always be holding spots for people if you get a great opportunity to do something. Just pounce on the opportunity. If you get a trade opportunity, if the middle of the pitching market falls out and you're like, well, these these guys nor in a normal year would be $10 million a year. This year, there's $6 million a year. We're going to go gobble up a few of them and just take our chances with them. Take a shot. Do it. You know, so if if it is a uniquely strange market, I hope that he is thinking at least that way. You, the opportunities don't always arise. And you you can't always say, you know, I was critical at the trade deadline that they didn't add anyone. But I'm also open to the fact that maybe the pricing wasn't right. Maybe they couldn't line up a deal. But you should never be thinking, no, this is the correct way to do it, and this is the incorrect way to do it. You don't know what's going to happen out in the marketplace. So always be investigating and figure out, does something fall to me? And if it does, I hope he pounces. Yeah, this is this is the perfect type of market for how they usually operate. But again, like you've said, you know, they've they haven't taken advantage of those opportunities at their price points that like line up with kind of what they do. So this will be, you know, this could be good for them and it could be, you know, maybe bad for them because they haven't really shown the ability to add three or four guys where all three or four of the guys like are going to work out for you. There's usually a couple of duds in there. So this will be, this will be interesting. Beef. Great stuff. Thanks so much for taking the time to jump on the future Sox podcast. Really, really great insight. Really appreciate it. Mike, James, thanks so much. Uh, listeners, go to fromthe108.com. That's our blog, podcast, all that stuff. We have a merch store there in case you want to get into a 108ing t-shirt. I mean, I don't know if your listeners even know what 108ing is, but go look it up and find it out. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I love the conversation. You heard it from Beef himself. Follow him at MrDelicious13 on Twitter, from the 108com Check out the 108 podcast. For Beef Loaf and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for tuning in. Check us out on anchor.fm forward slash future socks. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, and the like. Thanks again for listening to this episode. We'll talk to you all next time.